was a college student, I was interested in the issue of world hunger, and I, I wanted to do something big about it. And we used to do these tiny little fundraisers for Oxfam. And my senior year, I decided to organize a bike ride across America, and 39 of us rode 4,200 miles across the country to raise money for Oxfam. It was a very powerful experience. And then in the early 90s, I began to lose many friends, like many others, to AIDS. And there was nothing big that the average person could do. You could buy a red ribbon, or you could go to a black tie you know, chicken dinner. But it didn't equate with the uh, level of grief that you had, or the passion you had to do something. So I started a company, a for-profit company, called Pilata Teamworks. And we invented these very unique charitable events called the AIDS Rides and then the Breast Cancer Three Days. And what was unique about them was they didn't last a morning or a day. They lasted seven days or three days. And you had to bicycle 600 miles or walk 60 miles over the course of seven days or three days and sleep in a tent in this massive uh, mobile city that we created. And you had to raise a minimum of four figures for the privilege. So for the AIDS Ride, you had to raise at least $2,000. And we were very successful. We, we tapped into a deep hunger on the part of people who had AIDS or had breast cancer or who had lost someone to one of those issues to do something heroic. So over the course of uh, <clears throat> nine years, we had 182,000 people participate in one of these events. And they raised $556 million, which was more money raised more quickly for those two causes than any uh, private event operation in history. Uh, I'm Dan Pilata. The book is uh, entitled Uncharitable. It's from Tufts University Press. And the book comes from 10 years of producing these events, which gave me access to a very unique window into the way the public thinks about charity, the questions it asks before it makes donations, the restraints that it places on charity, and I began to see a whole picture uh, coalesce that was very dysfunctional. Well, we have two rule books. We have one for charity and one for the rest of the economic world. And that ru separate rule book discriminates against charity in five areas. First, in compensation, you know, we have a visceral reaction to people making very much money in charity which means charity can't pay competitive wages based on value, gives our young people a horrible, mutually exclusive choice between doing well and doing good, and sends very talented people right out of business school directly into the for-profit sector because they can't afford the kind of annual pay cut the nonprofit ethic requires. <clears throat> the second area is advertising and marketing. You know, we let the for-profit sector spend until the last dollar no longer produces a penny of value. So lots of freedom to advertise, which is why we're pummeled with ads for Botox and Budweiser and iPods. But we don't want to see our donations spent on paid advertising in charity. So charity can't build demand for its product, which is uh, these different causes. Third area is risk. You know, we let Paramount Studios make a uh, hundred million dollar movie that flops and we consider it part of their business model and the search for the big successes but we don't I can tell you from personal experience if you produce a five million dollar charity event that doesn't produce a 75 percent return in year one you know call the attorney general so charities are petrified of trying bold new revenue generating ideas and they can't develop the kind of learning curves the for-profit sector can 
Fourth is long-term uh, investment in revenue development. You know, Amazon went for, what, six years without paying a, a return to investors in the interest of a longer-term objective of building market dominance. Well, if we ever tried some charitable endeavor that didn't return money to the needy for six years, you know, there'd be a crucifixion. And the fifth and final area is profit itself. The for-profit sector can use uh, profit as an incentive to attract capital. The non-profit sector, by definition, cannot. So it has the donation as its only financial instrument, which means the for-profit sector monopolizes the multi-trillion dollar capital markets. So if you put these five things together, no competitive compensation, no meaningful advertising, no ability to take risk the way the for-profit sector can, no ability to invest in the long term, and no capital markets. You've just put charity at the most extreme disadvantage to the for-profit sector, and then, you know, we call this charity. I mean, charity could not be undermined with more reverence paid to charity. But people miss something very big, which is the market for altruism. And you know, we have, a, as we have a visceral need to help one another, you know. We enjoy helping one another. That's not selfless. It's very good for the self, you know. It, I, I feel very good when I do something for someone who's, who's hurting. Well, that's a taste that's as big, if not bigger, than our taste for music, our taste for art, our taste for leisure. And we ought to start to capitalize on it by using capitalism, by using markets. And it's a, it's a way that the market can redistribute income because the market will want to redistribute income because it will be better educated about these causes and, and will tap into people's natural desire to help one another rather than forcing <laughs> redistributions of income. So I think we've missed a huge opportunity with all of this moral regulation that's on that's on charity. The ideological roots are fascinating. To read about the Puritans, you know, the original settlers to New England in the 1630s, and they came here t to, for religious reasons, but they also, it's very clear, came here because they knew they could make a lot of money here. And they were aggressive capitalists. They established the Massachusetts Bay Colony as a corporation, but they were also Calvinists. And Calvin taught that they were to hate themselves, they were despicable in the eyes of God, um, and that self-interest was a sure path to eternal damnation. Well, this, you know, created a real problem for them. Here they're all self-interested and profit-minded, and their religion is telling them profit is horrible. So charity became this kind of economic sanctuary, this compartment where they could do penance for their profit-making tendencies. So it necessarily had to have a different set of rules. How could you make money in charity if charity was your penance for making money? So they created these two worlds where there was only ever one, and the merchants and the farmers and the builders of the world got free market capitalism, and the needy got this non-profit ethic, this dogma whereby Everything that worked in the market was banished. And you can see that we still live with this irrational system today. Like, you know, you can't make money investing in a soup kitchen, but Campbell's can make a profit investing in the charity, selling the charity their soup. So you have all these internal inconsistencies which point out um, some huge irrationality at work. 
I think eventually what we need is a change in the tax code to allow nonprofit organizations without tax exemption to accept um, investments on which they can pay a financial return as a means of generating more capital. The nonprofit sector is tiny compared to government. The for-profit sector is fairly massive compared to government. I think if we let the nonprofit sector play by the same rules, it, it could um, be the custodian of many of these problems that we're now assigning to government simply because government's big. The only reason government's big is because is we make it big. And, and um, the nonprofit sector could be huge if we gave it more freedom.